Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. I'd like to start with, with the end this morning. And uh, it's been 40 years since the Exodus. We find Moses, uh, he, is, he is an old man, 120 years old. And he blesses the people. He climbs Mount Nebo, and he looks out across the land. Mount Nebo sits right on the edge of the promised land, and at the top, he's able to see home. He's able to see the promised land for the first time with his own eyes on top of Mount Nebo. There it is, the promised land. This is his home. This is the land for his people, his family. This is it. Now, quick backstory, because of disobedience, he's disqualified from going into the promised land, but he gazes out across the horizon. He sees it. He's only known Egypt and wilderness. And then what happens? He, He dies. Moses dies. He lived a long life. He lived a life on borrowed time, if you think about it. If you go way back, if you know the story, uh, the the beginning of of Moses' life, he was supposed to be drowned in the Nile River because Pharaoh uh, commanded that all the baby boys were to be killed. And he was rescued by his mom. He was hidden for three months. You guys know this story, remember this story, right? We, We talked about it weeks ago, but let's just do a quick recap Moses floated right into Pharaoh's palace, and he ended up growing up as an adopted prince of Egypt, a a Hebrew being raised in the Egyptian palace. As he grows up, he's 40 years old, and he commits murder, and that causes him, he has to run away, he's a refugee, and he goes out into the wilderness where he eventually finds a new tribe to belong to. He gets married, he becomes a father, he becomes a shepherd. And then he takes care of his father-in-law's sheep. He goes to the far corners of the wilderness. And that's where God calls him into ministry. God gives him this calling. He says, hey, Moses, Moshe, you are going to be the liberator of my people. It's the burning bush scene. And Moses keeps trying to get out of it. He's reluctant. Okay, He's trying to come up with all the excuses. One of them is like, hey, I'm not a good speaker. I have a sluggish tongue. We don't really know what he's referring to, but there's some sort of uh, vocal language, vocabulary, speech impediment of some sort. He's trying to get out of it, but God is like, nope, you can't run away from your calling. So Moses, as the story goes on, he ends up hooking up with his his brother, who's going to be a better speaker and and part of that, that vocal ministry there. And so Moses and Aaron... Uh, they, they kind of become the key figures, and they confront Pharaoh. They go back to Egypt, and we have the ten plagues, right? And then the first Passover story, and then we have the great Exodus story. Moses leads two million, we guess, we estimate, two million people out of Egyptian slavery. Moses sees God part the waters. He turns a sea into a highway, Moses sees God setting the captives free. 
And God is there leading the people, fire at night, a pillar of cloud during the day. And they're in the wilderness and they, they just keep seeing God show up. There's opportunity, opportunities to trust God, to learn what it means to follow God. God keeps providing food and water. Again, God keeps showing up. And Moses was there trying to lead these people, trying to help them to forget the past and forge a new identity. God wants to remain close to his people. They're, they're, they're in covenant. Okay, They're in covenant with one another. God and his people. And so God invites the people to be a treasured possession. We talked about that last week. And part of this framework of, of being close to God. God's like, I'm going to give you a code of ethics. A code of conduct. Here's the Ten Commandments. This is going to help you stay close to me. Okay? Fall in love with the character of God. The Ten Commandments help us to do that. They help us know how to live, how to respond and react with God, how to respond and react with others. The Ten Commandments. It is a great, helpful code of conduct in this ancient world. And then we get to Exodus 32. Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, these tablets inscribed by God's finger, engraved by God himself. Okay, Moses is coming down the mountain. And I'm going to rely on, you know, I, I am assuming you've heard this story before. If not, that's cool. But Moses comes down the mountain. Do you remember what he sees? He sees dancing around this golden calf, Right? People dancing and, and, and worshiping around a, a statue of a, of a golden cow, a, a, a calf, okay? All right, they, they made it themselves. They, they took gold, melted it down, and they formed this idol, this, this golden calf. Now, in that culture, bulls, are that, like, that is a common symbol for, you know, pagan deities and, and whatnot. Canaanite worship. As, as we go further through the, the, the story of the Bible you'll see bulls pop up. The calf uh, is apparently this, uh, this God, has, like this is your God who has rescued you, Israel. This little baby golden cow. This is, this is the God who has saved you, all right? All right, church, how does God feel about idols? <laughs> right? The covenant is, is broken here, all right? Maybe they're confused. This is not how God wants to be worshiped. They're trying to think, they, maybe they want to worship God, but it's just, it's, it's distorted. It's, it's not what God wants. Covenant is broken. The first and second commandment are broken. And I'm sorry if, if, if you know this pain, but this is like adultery. This is, this hurts God. This idolatry, this, this, this messed up form of worship this breaks God's heart. And Moses, he, he sees this and he, he responds. Moses, what does he do? Smashes the Ten Commandments. Moses is justifiably angry. All right. His anger is justifiable, but still, we want to be careful, church. We want to be careful what we think and do. What we say, 
and our anger. Okay? Was breaking the tablets of God, carved by, with God's own finger, like, like, was this the right move to smash the Ten Commandments? <laughs> right? The Bible doesn't give us commentary, you know, it just kind of moves on with the story, but still, let's pause. We don't want to say or do something that we'll regret later. The Bible talks about our reactions, talks about anger, you know, and, and Proverbs, you know, we have some wisdom. A hot tempered person stirs up strife. Wisdom of James, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Be slow to smashing things. Moses, in his holy rage, what does he do next? He, he, he takes the, the calf and he obliterates it. Exodus 32, verse, verse 20. Uh, he, he burns it. He grinds it up. Uh, he scatters the ashes. Whatever's left of it, he scatters it into the water. And he makes them drink it. Okay? It's like an ancient object lesson. Swallowing their, their own sins. Okay? It's, it's, it's pronouncing guilt on them. You are all guilty. And I'm going to make you drink your own sin. Now, when we talk about idols and really weird, distorted forms of worship and things like that, when we talk about idols, you know, we typically don't struggle with cow figurines or statues or carved poles. But be warned, anything can be an idol. Anything. Tim Keller puts it this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Alright? Get your toesies out. I'm going to step on them. Yourself. Your own pride. Your ego. Your physical appearance. Perhaps your kids. Or the performance of your kids. Money. Material possessions, technology, like your television, your television time, your phone, your smartphone, watching the news, your schedule. Maybe there's a hobby that you like to just kind of squeak in there above your relationship with God. Maybe it's status, your job. What you do for a living or, or just whatever the case may be, if, if you're retired or it's just like you're plugged into something and you just, this is your identity, your job, sex, sports, comfort, food, drink, something political. We could go on. What are your idols? Why do you turn to them so quickly? What is going on in your circumstances that calls you to turn to them? To check out on God and instead turn to some cheap imposter substitute for God's presence, guidance, and authority. The Old Testament, you may have noticed, has a, a different sound to it when it talks about God's emotions and things like that. In Old Testament language, God's anger burned against the people. But Moses, 
He intercedes, and God relents. Thank God for intercessors. But what's really scary and sad is that in Exodus 33, God says to Moses, all right, you all can go to the promised land. You can go to the milk and honey place. You can go to the land of milk and honey, but I will not go with you. All right. You guys see that? Essentially, (laughs) yeah, you're my people. You're going to have the blessing of the land. I've made a promise with your ancestors. Like, I'm a God who keeps my promises. So, yeah, like, unfortunately, well, fortunately, like, like, here you go. Here are the goodies. You can have the blessing of the land, but God says, go and do life without me. Do you hear how that sounds, church? Live life without my personal presence. I don't want to dwell with you. So Moses, he, he's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do this without you, God. Moses, there, there is no point. All right, God, you, are, like, you make us special, okay? We're just a ridiculous group of, of like slaves. It's been you know, a couple months since we've, we've gone through the waters of, of the Sea of Reeds. Like, like, we're nobody without you, God. Moses does not want to go forward without God. So let me ask, ask you, how about you? I was reading Francis Chan, and he was kind of, he was reflecting on this story, and it's kind of like, sometimes people, sometimes we are like, uh, God's presence sounds nice, it sounds good, but what we really want are his blessings. We want the healing but not his heart. We want the goodies. We want the special labels of of being special treasure and kingly and priestly and all of that. But it's like, we want the goodies, but there is a big, stupid hole because God is absent. For us today, if, if there is an identity that is supposedly built on Christ, if there's supposed to be, uh, if there is a Christian claim, but Christ is, is absent, that is not an identity. That, that is a lie. That's folk religion. It's potentially something like a cult. I don't know. Slapping Christ, slapping Christ's name on something doesn't make it Christian. So I want us to be very careful with that. With using the Lord's name and not applying it to empty things. We need to be careful with that. Moses, he sees this as a, as a nightmare situation. They are dangerously close to just faking it as a people. That they can just go on their way. That, that they'll, they'll play the part. My humble reflections. To be brutally honest, I, I think there is a lot of faking it that goes on in churches today. It's it's one of our planks, okay? It's, it's a plank in our eye. A, a church looks good on the outside, but it's filled with what I'll call pragmatic machinery, okay? Whatever works, let's just do it, right? I mean, if we get results, if we get larger attendance, if we get a bigger offering, then that automatically means we're nailing it and God is blessing us, Right? doesn't matter how we get there, as long as we do. 
So we just need to find what is most useful. That is the philosophy of being pragmatic. We want to find what is the most useful. God helps those who help themselves, right? And there are churches that look sweet and they look awesome on the outside. But, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not here to judge or anything like that. But is, is Christ there? Is the spirit of Christ dwelling in those people? Or did they really figure out just how to do church? Church machinery, machinery really well. I'm, I'm a questioning. It's a question here. I want us to be warned, Plymouth Meeting Church. And that's my heart today. Like, I want us to be warned that we want to be careful that we don't underhandedly just pride ourselves in pulling off a really cool church. You know, we're, we're just, we're the sweet little boutique church on Germantown Pike and but then we end up being lukewarm. We're not hot or, or cold. And Jesus is like, I wish you were one or the other. You're a distracted church or you, you're a diluted church. And I'm drawing upon the, 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 the image in Revelation chapter 2. There's this little sweet letter to, to Laodicea. It's this imagery of Jesus standing outside a door and he's, he's knocking, right? We have it painted on our wall upstairs. Jesus is locked out of his own church. So we want to be careful. When we think about church, when we do ministry council and small groups, when we gather on Sunday mornings, when we, when we pull weeds out front, when we go on prayer walks with one another, that, that, that we're Christocentric, that Christ is there, that Christ is, is dwelling there. You know? So Moses... Back in Exodus, Moses finds favor with God and he appeals to God and he asks God to remember, God, these are your people. God does change his mind. His presence will go with them. He will give them rest. And so, yes, we do not want to go forward without God's presence. If God is inviting us to wait and be still... We are going to wait and be still. If God is saying go, then we are going to go. Like, like we, we, we move with the king. Jesus is our, our center. We want to do church with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. We're accepted. It's by his grace we're, we're even here and we get to do this. Jesus is our center and we orient our lives Towards him, we are defined by Jesus and his good news. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We are Jesus people. We are sinners saved by grace. So moving forward, what is God going to do with his kids? Better yet, how does a holy God move with really messed up sinful people? Well, God gives them tabernacle, which is a portable temple. And and it it would have resembled like a king's tent. Okay. You can check it out in in the book of Exodus. This is actually how their camp looked. Northwest, east, south, different tribes gathering together. The tabernacle in the middle, the Levites there in the center, 
Moses, Moses had his little tent, I imagine, hanging out. The tabernacle would have resembled a king's tent. There's lots of gold. There's furniture and artifacts in there. One of them is the Ark of the Covenant. So when the king moves, the people move. Fire or cloud. When God moves, the people move. And it's not just like a royal kingly tent where where the king of the cosmos is dwelling here on earth. We also see covenant and we see sacrifice. There is a bloody altar. And so priests, they would smear blood on the ark of God. Life is given to cover sin. So in the Ark of the Covenant, we don't have time to explain it today, but in the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the law. God looks down, so to speak, and he sees how much we break this law. But here's good news. They would smear blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And instead of seeing the broken law, God sees the blood. Animal sacrifices laid this groundwork for Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice. He, he gave his life to cover our sins so that we could have life. Hebrews says that the blood of Christ cleanses our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. We're not just covered and set free, but we're set free so that we can serve, so that we can go back to living out our human vocation of, of exercising this, this dominion that has love and service and care all wrapped around it. Go, go, and, and, go and subdue this wild earth and spread the good news. You're free to do that. You're free to be human. You're free to reflect me again. Christ does that. He sets us free. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We're set free from sin. A lot of theology we're kind of just barely touching on. But we've got to move on. Moses is with these rowdy people. And there's this tabernacle. But thankfully, God didn't check out. The presence of God is there. All right, let's do it. Let's go to the promised land, right? All right. Life doesn't unfold neatly for them. And the people of God, they complain because they keep running into hardship or there's food scarcity or there's water scarcity or they have issues with the leadership. And we just see these people, they're complaining and they're grumbling. We get out outside of Exodus. Let's go to Numbers 13 and 14. They're almost at the promised land. All right. They're almost there. And so they send spies out to check it out. Right. Most of the spies, okay, the spies come back, most of them, they're flipping out with what they see. They're like, this is a bad situation. They don't want to go into the promised land. And what we see in the story is that there is almost a mutiny. They want a new leader. In fact, they want to go back to Egypt. So in summary, this is the sentiment. Let's go backwards and not forwards. But like, backwards is better. Let's go back to Egypt. Can you imagine? So God is just angry at this wicked community. Where's the loyalty? Where's the 
fidelity, the, the faithfulness, like where's the trust, where's the, the belief, like, like man, Moses, he intercedes. Again, God relents, God forgives, but in his right, he brings a judgment. Those who tested, those who were disobedient, those who treated God with contempt, they're not going to be able to go into the promised land. They won't go into the promised land, but their kids will. And so, in a sense, God gives them what they want. Okay? You didn't want to go into the promised land, so guess what? You're not going to go. And you're going to wander for 40 years. Till this disobedient generation passes away. And then your kids are going to be able to go home. From a leadership point of view, these people just created more work for Moses. And it ends up being 40 more years of leading these stubborn people. And the story goes on. At one point, even Moses and Aaron, as I referenced earlier, they disqualify disqualify themselves from being able to enter the promised land. And the Pentateuch, that's the fancy name for the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of law, and there's a lot of stuff that's like confusing and dry, but there is a big story arc that goes from Genesis through Deuteronomy. In the first five books of the Bible, as the story goes on, there's more stories of disobedience, more laws are given, there's opportunities to trust God, to learn to turn and worship God. That story keeps going, and, and kind of like a bird's eye view here of the first five books of the Bible, what we keep seeing is God's faithfulness, that God is patient, his patient love keeps showing up. And we learn that God desires love to be the fuel in this relationship. Not rules, not sacrifice, as important as they are, but it's love. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, it's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But with meeting church, let's be reminded that what we do for God, you know, that, that's, that's an expression of our love for God. He is faithful to us, and we are to love him from our heart. Okay? Love him personally, not because of rules or because there's some ladder to climb. We love him from our heart. Love is foundational. It's formational to our trusting, to to trust in him. We trust because he first loved us. As you often hear in evangelical messages, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. And here it is again. It's about relationship. So Moses, Moses loved God. And the Bible says that he spoke to God like a friend. But as we kind of turn towards the end here, Moses knew something about our human condition. Moses knew something about our heart. Our hearts have a core problem. And so very near the end of of Moses' life, God allowed Moses to prophetically look ahead And what Moses sees is more disobedience from the people. Moses actually sees captivity. Oh, it gets worse, okay? But then he sees, hey, they will return back to God. And this does play out as the story of the Bible goes on. 
prophetically looking ahead. He sees this. The people will be disobedient. There will be captivity. But then they will return to God. And Moses sees that God will give them a new heart. One that is circumcised. A heart cut for spiritual renewal. And Moses says to the people, so that you may love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. Looking forward through the channels of history, Moses sees how badly we need a new heart. No law can ever fix us. No miracle will ever be amazing enough to keep us loyal. We need a new heart. We need a better Moses. We need a Messiah. And we need Jesus. And we need the new heart that he provides in the power of his Holy Spirit. So friends, brothers and sisters, has Jesus given you a new heart? If the answer is no, I'd love to talk to you as soon as we can. Has Jesus given you a new heart? If the answer is yes, if Jesus has given you a new heart, then let that yes scream over all those idols. You don't need them. Let your yes to Jesus just shout at your doubts and your fears. Jesus is bigger. Let your big yes to Jesus be so big that it bolsters your belief. Keep turning to the Lord. Keep saying yes to Jesus. And be transformed. Because that's what happens in relationship. You don't stay the same person. So what's incredible about Moses as we close here? Moses was like you and I. Was he a superhero? He was like you and I. He had mistakes. But he kept learning to say yes to the love and the call that was in his life. At the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy 34, Moses is not described as a complicated order. He's not some ex-prince of Egypt. He's not a murderer. He's called a servant of the Lord. Moses, the one whom the Lord knew face to face. And I don't think it matters much if Jesus calls you to take on the next Pharaoh and liberate people, or if Jesus just calls you to faithfully be available in your ordinary life. Whatever the call is, what matters is knowing the one who is calling you. And doing life with him. Being faithful. We all have different size plates. I get that. The quantity of what we're called to do may be different. But the quality is the same for all of us. What matters is doing life with Jesus. What matters is knowing Jesus face to face. Loving God. And living in freedom. Being a movement of God moving forward and not looking back in the past. Let's pray.